0: So last week we started a new sermon series. What we're doing for the next few weeks is we are specifically looking at this Old Testament book of Esther. And Esther is both... It's a very unique book. In fact, if you would read Esther, it is a challenging book to understand. And one of the reasons is, is because it is a historical narrative. It's telling true history. But there is also a hidden uh, message to it. So it functions like a parable that Jesus would tell in uh, the, the New Testament. And so it's a, it's a challenging story. And it's complicated it's also a complicating book to read. Like on one hand, we we never see God's name mentioned once. We never see God's people praying. We never see God's people uh, pointing to God's word and his covenant. We don't see God's people doing those things. Instead, God's people that and we'll see them today and we'll really look at this today. The the heroes of the story Esther and Mordecai, they are morally ambiguous. Are they obeying God? Are they being faithful Jews or aren't they? And so we'll dive into that very question today. And so the all of these things mean that this is a very challenging book to really understand. And to understand its lessons and relevance for our life today. But even actually in just that, the hiddenness of God is the ingenious of the book of Esther. Because we, in our lives, we feel like God is absent many times. We feel like God is hidden from us. And so the the reality is that Esther is meant to be incredibly encouraging to us and showing us what it means for us to follow a sometimes hidden God. And that's the title for this uh, series. And so today we're looking at uh, Esther 2, beginning with verse 1, and we'll be reading all the way up to Esther 3, verse 6. So Esther 2, beginning with verse 1, reading to Esther 3, verse 6. If you're reading along in one of these blue Bibles, it's on page 410. So I don't, uh, let's give our careful attention to reading of God's word. You can follow along here or up on the walls beside me. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what, had done, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair. Son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, this, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter, as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food. And with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young woman To the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being twelve months under the regulations for the women, Since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in and the king went in his way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashkez, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for it, nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, devised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month which is the month of Tebeth in the 7th year of his reign the king loved Esther more than all the women and when she, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. then the king gave a feast a great feast for all his officials and servants it was Esther's feasts he also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bithun and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found, it, and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamandatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we ask that at this time your spirit would be working your word into our hearts, that we would walk with you today. Help us to know your word, and help us to see you more clearly because of your word today. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Have you ever wondered how people became politicians, became government officials in the first place? Have you ever wondered that question? A friend of mine, Katie Francis, uh, she was a member of a church in in Pittsburgh. She did a Bible study with Jennifer. This was actually the question that her doctoral dissertation answered. And her research demonstrates that politicians don't just start out going directly into government. That is very rare. In fact, 70% of all our federal government uh, officials who serve in the House, in in Congress, 70% of them are lawyers. Many others are doctors. Many others are serve in the military. Others are served and worked in media. Others in business and so on. And some even uh, served in the local governments, perhaps starting as dog catcher. And Others would serve in the state government, and then they would move on up to the federal government. That's actually what we expect. There is a, a ladder to climb if you are a politician, a, a civil uh, servant. How, but when we read Scripture, there are many surprising stories of how people come into their government capacities. We would never expect someone who, to be trafficked as a slave to a foreign country and told and reported to his family to be presumed dead. But that was the story. That's the case with Joseph. Nor would we expect uh, someone being taken prisoner by an invader And ending up with other children and other teenagers as part of a despised ethnic minority in the enemy's land. But that was the story of Daniel. But nor would we expect one being abducted and becoming the emperor's slave as a viable option. But that is the story of Esther. And this is what we just read about today. And Esther, the woman that we just read about, this entire book uh, is named after her. And to dive into, this, into, to dive into chapter 2, if you were with us last week, chapter 2 takes place four years later after the events in chapter 1. Last, last week, we saw that what Ahasuerus is doing is that he is having a war council. He is trying to win over the loyalty of his empire as they go to attack Greece. And Ahasuerus is known by a Greek name, Xerxes. And there's this epic, epic failure that where 300 Spartans and other Greeks defeated his army. And so he is back home in Persia, and he is sitting there in shame. And so he remembers, like that, he remembers the fact that he banished Queen Vashti. That's really the context where our story begins. He is here, humiliated, and not only there. Not only is he humiliated, he is actually like really, he's weak. His treasury is empty. He just spent his fortune on sending his army to Greece, and he, they've lost. And so because of that embarrassment, two of his, his guards, his servants, his eunuchs that we read about, um, Bithan and Teresh, Teresh, they conspire to kill him, and their plot fill, fails. And so that's really the, the context for the events in our, in our chapter, so he, so Ahasuerus is in it, he's feeling down, he's despairing, he, he's full of sorrow, he's sorry for himself, and he regrets that he sent away his beautiful uh, wife, his beautiful queen, Vashti. And so he, his, his servants come to him with an idea to really to lift his spirits, and it's like the bachelor, it's like the bachelor, but it's far worse. And the reason why it's far worse, but here's what said. Let us gather beautiful young virgins from around the empire, bring them to the capital to be part of the harem and participate in a 12-month beauty pageant. So the the events of chapter 2 take place over a full year. And so what we see right here as we like look at Esther, as we begin to look at Esther, everything that Every verb that's attached to her name here is passive. She doesn't have a choice in the matter. She, like, and as I said last week, the events of Esther 1 set the stage for us to understand Esther. If we look at Bathshee, she used her voice to defy the emperor, and she's banished. And so that's really the context that where we need to begin to understand Esther. That life under a brutal dictator, under an emperor was not pleasant it wasn't pleasant whatsoever and so even to the original audience that would read this book so far they wouldn't be surprised by any of this because they're they're not living in in jerusalem they're living under a pagan gentile ruler that who, who doesn't even who doesn't know god who doesn't follow his ways so, so far, everything that I have said would not have surprised the original audience. But what would surprise the original audience is what's found in verse 5. When we read that, Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite. What would be surprising to them is the fact that Jews have the opportunity, they have the freedom to leave the Persian lands, and go back to their home. They have the tr- chance to go back to Jerusalem and be part of the rebuilding effort that is going on there. And that's clearly pictured for us in the books of Ezra and the books of Nehemiah. And so what Esther is about, Esther is about whether or not God is faithful, that whether or not God is going to rescue his faithless people that's what Esther is about. Is God going to rescue his faithless people? People who choose not to go home, people who choose not to be faithful to the entirety of God's law, but choose to be in exile. That's what's going on in Esther. And so the the overwhelming answer to that is yes. That's the whole point of the book of Esther. And so let me just dive right into this because the whole idea of today's sermon, the text is, is this to put in a question for him. What does it mean for us to live out our faith? What does it mean to live out our faith? That's the whole, the whole point of today's, of today's uh, sermon. What does it mean for us to live out our faith? And so to, to really just go back into the context and then, uh, To go back to the context, because the events of Esther occur within uh, the period of Israel's history known as the exile. Israel was defeated and carried away into captivity, both in 722 by the Assyrian Empire, then 586 by the Babylonians, and the Persian Empire rescued not really rescued, they defeated the Babylonians and and allowed their, the peoples that they conquered to return back to, to their homes and so in Isaiah, the Persian emperor Cyrus is called like the liberator and so Persians like really liberated them from exile and allowed Israelites to return home and so what we see within god 's word is is this that if you would obey God's law, then he would protect you. He would, he would fight for you. But if you disobeyed God, he would allow you to be conquered. And so what's going on is Mordecai and Esther, they are choosing to remain in exile. That's what's going on. And so coming to verse 5, we, we read something that there was a Jew in Susa. Now Susa is one of the four persian capitals but here's a jew who is choosing to live in susa and he is he is choosing to work in susa as a politician he is cooperating he is collaborating with the persian authorities in the persian empire and he is choosing to, to remain in exile and then when uh, the whole tension of the chapter sets off, when there's this, when the, the bachelor, uh, I want to say, actually, let's not call it the bachelor. Let's call it the Persian dictator. Um, like when he starts, and, and when that's announced, this is what Mordecai says to his, his adopted uh, daughter, Esther. He says to her, do not make your, your ethnicity, your your ethnicity, your heritage known to them. So here's Mordecai who is actually telling his adopted daughter to remain hidden. Now, I said this last week, but when it comes to the Hebrew and how uh, Hebrews tell stories, names mean everything. And Esther is full of irony in their names. Like, for example, uh, King Ahasuerus sounds like the Hebrew word headache. Like so, we were basically saying King Headache. Okay, that's supposed to be funny, and and Esther. That's not even her her birth name. Her birth name is Hadassah, but and we that's mentioned I believe twice. But we don't. She goes by her name Esther, and Esther is is her name her Persian name, and she's named after the Persian goddess Ishtar, the goddess of sex and war. That's her, her name. But in per, but in Hebrew, Esther sounds like hidden. And so the author wants us to see that Esther is, is hiding things. She is being hidden. But then even looking at Mordecai, we don't know what his Hebrew name is. Uh, we know that he, is, he has a great uh, uh, heritage, and we'll look at that next week. But he's, his name is Mordecai. He's named after the Babylonian god Marduk, who is the equivalent of Zeus, like the chief god of the of the. Of the ancient pantheon and so so we come to these the the heroes of the story and they like already we are meant to be asking questions are they faithful israelites are they hiding their faith and we go on to see that the answer is that yes they are hiding their faith quite clearly like uh, mordecai says don't tell anyone you're a jew but there's other dynamics that are going on here Esther, as she goes off to participate in the Persian uh, dictator, she's going through this twelve-month uh, this twelve-month beauty regimen, and she's not obeying any of the dietary laws that God gives His His people. She's she, she's not like. In, to, as a contrast, you can look at the Book of Daniel, and we see something similar similar going on when the. Uh, Babylonian emperor, I forget his name. But he's basically requiring all these captives, the people he just defeated, to follow a Babylonian diet. And Daniel says, I'm not pass, give me the vegetables. That's what's going on. Esther doesn't do that whatsoever. She she actually just fully participates as we see here in, in our story. And not only that, there's like she is being she's a victim. She is completely taken advantage of by this emperor as well. And she doesn't uh, use her voice to protest. And as I said earlier, every time a verb is connected to Esther, it's a passive voice. Esther was taken. It doesn't say Esther went along with it. Esther or she went, she was taken. This gives us the picture that she didn't have a choice in the matter whatsoever. She is a victim of this Persian uh, dictator. And so what, we, what I just want to highlight in, in going through this was, like I skipped over an important point, that the purpose of those, the, these Old Testament dietary laws is that God's people are meant to be different from their non-Christian neighbors. Like to look at the Israelites very specifically, they're keeping these really this odd assortment of laws that, as we look at, would be really weird. But the point of it is the point of all those laws is that God's people are meant to be different. the The word that Scripture uses is holy. That God's people are meant to be set apart and holy, and that, that c- continues today. That we hear Jesus saying in in Matthew five that uh, the church, that God's people, are a city on a hill. The church is, God's people are meant to be seen and meant to be noticed that the church is salt. And, and when we follow Jesus, the church is also the light of the world as well. And so God's people are set apart and they are, and God's people are meant to be noticed by the distinctiveness of our life. And so what we see with Mordecai and Esther is they are not doing that whatsoever. And so, just like, I want to lean more into Esther here, because like I said last week, the events of Esther 1 with Queen Vashti, Vashti really set the stage for us to understand Esther. Because we, we see Vashti saying uh, the word no to the emperor, and he's like completely paralyzed. But he, he banishes her. She is sent into exile. She falls out of favor, and she's kicked on out. And so, the... the the clear lesson is that if you defy the emperor, you're going to be dismissed. If you say no, you're going to be rejected. And at this point, commentators, uh, ver- some very conser- conservative commentators to very progressive feminist commentators, who they-, they themselves would define them that way, they don't like Esther. They Together, uh, conservative to feminists, they criticize Esther. For example, conservatives look at Esther and criticize her for not speaking out, for not being faithful. And then on the other hand, feminists praise Vashti while, and throw Esther under the, bu- the bus because she doesn't use her voice and she lets herself be used by the patriarchal Persian Empire. But these critics fail to, to truly understand that Esther only has five options at this point. Like she she doesn't have like she doesn't have a choice in this. There's there's five things that really could happen to her. And they are that well, the first thing is that she is a concubine, that she'll never be visited by the king. She's doomed to a life of loneliness. And so singleness is being forced upon her. And if any if she has any children due to this one-night stand, she's never gonna see them. Like they're the, the king's kids, they're not her kids. The second thing that could happen, again, is that she is a concubine, but she is regularly visited by the king at his leisure, at his choice. She has no voice, she, or no say. She is a victim to his desires. And again, if she has any children, they're not her kids. They're the king's kids. Um, and she would not be able to be a mother whatsoever. And so the third thing is that she would become his wife, just one of many. The fourth thing is that she would become his favored wife, ultimately being crowned queen, and her children would become the heirs, uh, would be, would receive the inheritance and potentially be the next em- uh, the next emperor. And but as we saw last week with Queen Vashti, that only lasted um, as long as the the king actually liked her. And, and and so then the fifth thing is that she would be banished, or worse, even be be killed. Like these are these are the only options to Esther at this time. And so as we look at Esther now, here's the thing that we need to notice. The Bible is very honest about the successes and failures of God's people. Esther does not gain power or influence by her obedience, unlike Joseph in in the book of Genesis. Esther gains power and influence through her silence. And so the authors of of Scripture, with a couple of, of exceptions... So there are exceptions to what I'm about to say. But the author of Scripture, well, I'll put it this way, the author of Esther, do not intend to, to, do not intend for us to put Esther up on a pedestal to be our hero, to be our moral example, to be followed. Because Esther's not meant to be a book. Oh, look at her, She's someone to behold and admire. Like the author, quite differently, intends for you to ask these same questions about your life. Am I being faithful or am I being faithless? That, these are the questions that Esther, this book, is meant for you to address. Are you living out your faith or are you hiding your faith? When, when you have, when circumstances are be, beyond your control, how do you live? When life is challenging, what do you do? These are the questions the author wants you to figure out as well. In Jesus' own words, Christians face the call to be in the world but not of the world. And Mordecai, at best, probably shaped his life around a similar command where the prophet Jeremiah tells his people, tells the Israelites to seek the peace of the city. So at best, Mordecai is seeking to be a vehicle of blessing to the Persian Empire by participating in political service. That's at best. But when we take a step back and look at Mordecai and look at Esther, we see quite clearly they hide their faith. they hide the fact that they, they are Jews. but and we don't know why they, tr- they hide their faith. We don't know why they hide their identity, but they just do. Perhaps it's out of fear. perhaps they did not return to Jerusalem because of other complicating, challenging factors. Perhaps they're even uh, staying in Susa in, in obedience to Jeremiah's words, "Seek the peace of the city. We don't know why they remain in Susa. but one lesson, very clear is that they are there they are there in Susa and God has reasons for them to be in Susa God is going to use them to rescue his people and so I'm just giving away the rest of the book I really am I'm giving it like God uses them despite their faith despite their disobedience God uses them to rescue his people in in incredible ways And so as we think about our life, as we think about our own life as followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus is very clear about our call where we are meant to be a city on a hill, a light in the world, salt of the earth, like Christian even. That very name Christian means little Christ. And in the Old Testament, God's people were meant to be a blessing to the whole world. We see that in Genesis 12. And so God's people are meant to be known. We're meant to be distinct. We're meant to live out our faith. And so as we look right again at Mordecai, there there are some incredible things for us to understand about our own life and life in this world. That the fact is, living out our faith is a challenging thing. That is the lesson of Esther 2. That living out our faith is a challenging thing. That at the very least, Mordecai and Esther and other Jews are being pressured. They're being despised as Jews. At the very least, it's this cultural, social pressure. Even though they can return to Jerusalem, even though they have a degree of religious liberty, they are being despised. That's at best. At the very least, that's what's going on. At the worst, there is a degree of persecution, but, and and that is actually exactly where Esther's heading. When we see in Esther 3 that here's this guy, Haman. Again, we'll look at him next week. He's introduced to us, and he basically says, I want to commit genocide. I want to wipe these Jews off the face of the map. And so so it's not... At this point, when we just are introduced to Mordecai and Esther in chapter two, before we even get to Haman a year later, it's uh, it's not—it's not—it's very reasonable to assume that there is a degree of persecution going on against the Jews, and so even perhaps for that, Mordecai is encouraging Esther to be silent. And so, right here, it's—it's something for us to understand that being—that living out our faith is challenging. We're not persecuted for being a Christian. We're not persecuted. Christians are persecuted in other countries very clearly, like specifically specifically in Islamic countries. There's a a not there's this overt hostility towards Christianity, and but again, Christians there. And Islamic countries are faced with an ethical dilemma as well. Should, like, and this is known that if you are a Muslim and you convert to Christianity, like some Muslims still pretend to be Muslims even while they secretly are Christians. Like, so th- this dynamic that we see in, in Esther is actually a dynamic that we can see elsewhere in the world. And it's in the, but the parallel is that those are con- countries of great persecution. But bring this to, to bear for our life, like we're not persecuted, but we can relate to, the, to what's going on here because we are pressured to either abandon our faith or we are pressured to adjust our faith to meet the whims of whatever ideology is floating around in the world today. Like in the workforce, for example, sharing your faith is seen as proselytizing, that if you share your faith uninvited, If you talk about Jesus without being asked, then you will be fired. There's at least grounds for dismissal. But the implicit message there is that God and Jesus, Christianity, has no bearing, no relevance to your work. That's the message right there. So there's this pressure to to keep your faith private. That's on one hand. There's other examples, like if you can uh, think about public education, where, God, again, God and your studies have no correlation. The two have nothing to do with one another. And these are just, like, two examples, and we could go almost all day about how our secular post-Christian world pressures us to ad- abandon or adjust our faith. The, like it could be gender and sexuality marriage could be more uh, there's other things as well but the idea is that if you give into this pressure then you're going to be privatizing your faith but the but the claim is that Jesus is lord that is the essential creed of the christian faith that Jesus is lord over all of our life and he and so we need to bring our life to under we need to bring our life under his his lordship and so like There's that pressure to privatize our faith, to abandon our faith, to adjust our faith. And so what I would just want to see is that our world pressures us to make God's love private. That's huge. Think about that. Our world pressures us to make God's love private. But the call of Jesus is to make God's love public, to make God's love known. And so How we make God's love known is by living out our faith. By living out our faith. So amid all this cultural pressure that we face, we have to answer one question. We have to answer one question. Do we want to be a part of God's family? Do we want to be identified with God? Do we want to be identified with his people, with his Church, do we want to be identified with him no matter what the cost is? Are we willing to endure pressure, ridicule, and persecution for him? These are questions that we need to answer. Jesus himself said, if you're going to follow me, count the cost. We need to count the cost. But the gospel reality is that God is willing to face ridicule and persecution for us. The gospel reality is that Jesus was mocked and reviled. The most innocent man was killed so that we can have life with God. The most innocent man in the world who has ever lived, the only innocent man who has ever lived, became guilty to rescue us, to rescue you, so that you can have life with God. He rescues us from our guilt. He rescues us from our sin. He rescues us from the penalty of our sin. And yet Jesus was mocked, he was betrayed, he was scorned, he was revivaled, he was even put to death. The author of Hebrews tells us that he was, he became an outcast so that we could become children of God. And so the gospel of truth is that when we hide, God comes looking for us. When we hide, God comes looking for us. And this is clearly seen throughout scripture. Like, let me just go think, of, think about Genesis 3 for, for a moment, if you know that story well. But what's going on in Genesis 3 is that the, the first humans, Adam and Eve, they sin, they disobeyed God. And they knew, they knew what they did, and, and they felt shame for the first time. They, they knew their guilt for the first time, and they hear God walking. And, they're, and so they hear God walking, and what do they do? They hide. They hide. Even though they know God's looking for them, they, they, they hide. And, and we hear this, that God says, where are you? Now, oftentimes, when we think about that question, when we read Genesis 3, we read it with a certain tone like this. Where are you? We hear it in a tone of condemnation. That's how we read it. But that's not what's going on whatsoever. It is actually meant to be heard with a tone of pursuit. That God is asking, where are you? He's calling Adam and Eve. He's calling you to come to him out, out of hiding. And if you even just go uh, a few verses later, when God is actually having a, a conversation with them, when Adam and Eve respond to them, when they're no longer hiding, but they're blaming one another and so forth, instead of like condemning them, even at this point, even when he's found them, instead of condemning them, what God, sa- God asks them, um, like, who told you this? Who have you been listening to? What lies have you like have you been told? He's he is t- asking them what voices are are speaking into their lives. And so God knows that we listen to lies. He knows that we live in a cultural moment where we are being pressured to walk away from him, that where we are being pressured to abandon our faith, to hide. He knows all this, but he is constantly following us, not following us. He's constantly Uh, pursuing us and inviting us to follow him he pursues us in our disobedience he pursues us in our sin and our guilt and our shame and we see this most clearly in jesus christ that god so loved us that he sends his son to rescue us and that rescue involved being humiliated it involved being rejected so that we could become children of god and so amid all these cultural pressures that we see going on here, amid all the, the cultural pressures to abandon our faith, to adjust our faith, to privatize our faith, amid all those cultural pressures, we need to revisit the truth of who God is and what he has done for us. We need to remember that God is the king over all things, and he is pursuing us. And so if you're a Christian, this is the God you follow. This is the God whom you look to and say, this is my father. He, he is your father who's pursuing you. And he, even though you, he, like, he knows all the sin in your life, he knows everything you have done, everything you will do, and yet he still pursues you. That's the God that we have. He is the father we have. He is pers- pursuing you. And it's our calling to make the, the same love that He pursues us with, it's our calling to make that love public. That's the calling that we have as Christians. We are called to live out our faith. And so, but if you're here today, if you if if you're not a Christian, Jesus tells you to count the cost. Count the cost. He wants you to, to ask the question Is following Jesus worth it is following him worth it is life with god worth it even knowing that you may be ridiculed even though actually it's not even a maybe you will be ridiculed you will be mocked but you may be persecuted that like we're told these this quite clearly jesus tells us this that we are going to be we're going to face all those things if you're if you're not a christian jesus tells you himself to count the cost and the answer the answer, and, and seriously, ask anyone here who, who says yes, that following Jesus, that yes, they have counted the cost and that they, they follow Jesus Christ. Like You can ask them. That following God is not easy. But following God is true life. It's abundant life. It's joy and it is freedom. That is the gospel. That is, that is life with God. That And life with God is worth it. And we are meant to live that out. And we'll see in the coming weeks like even despite our faithlessness, God will use us for great things. And that we'll see that in next week in the next few weeks. Let's pray.